0: Hello, and welcome to Pod, Silicon Valley Shakespeare's podcast. I'm Angie Higgins, Silicon Valley Shakespeare's Artistic Director. In the spirit of Silicon Valley Shakespeare's motto to innovate, illuminate, and inspire, our podcast brings you a mix of exclusive performances, behind-the-scenes interviews, and exploration into the weird and wonderful world of Shakespeare sometimes it takes nasty women to get things done so today we are shining the spotlight on the ladies Svs posted a call for female identifying and non-binary actors to submit their take on classic male shakespearean monologues and the call was answered we hope you enjoy the work of these fantastic local artists performing a variety of shakespeare pieces but first, to give us all a deeper appreciation for how far women have come as performers, our resident dramaturg Doll Piccata will share with you her bard talk on the history of women in theater. Take it away, Doll.
1: Kate, don't go there. Lady acting is illegal. Besides, girls can't act, just as they cannot practice law, cure the
2: sick, handle financial matters, or stand for any office. No woman has ever been allowed to try any of those things. <laughs> because they can't do them. God's bodkins, Kate. What's not to get? My name is Doll Picado, and this is Bard Talk. One of the running gags in the Shakespearean BBC comedy, Upstart Crow, is that of poor Kate, the landlady's daughter, and her fervent desire to act in one of Shakespeare's plays. She is constantly begging him to cast her in his teen romance play or his big donkey gag play, only to be reminded that lady acting is illegal and he gives her a myriad of reasons for it. Everything from it is illegal for girls to do anything interesting to men are better than women by law so it must therefore follow that they must even be better at being women this of course is based on the historical reality of shakespeare's time it is common knowledge that women did not perform on the public stage what is not common knowledge is there seems to be no concrete evidence that it was actually illegal professor Emma Smith of Oxford University lectured, there is no formal prohibition. There is no legal problem. It seems to be one of those cultural norms that's so ingrained that nobody needs to tell anyone to do it and nobody needs to challenge it. So what were these cultural norms that made it so clear to Shakespeare's stage that women were not allowed on it, not even to play roles depicting their own gender. Although there are many factors which contributed, today we're going to explore two arenas that certainly contributed, how Elizabethans viewed the theater and how Elizabethans viewed women. Now the reputation of the Elizabethan theater was not the golden one that we give it today. In fact, the overwhelmingly predominant image associated with the theater at that time was prostitution. This came about for many reasons, the most obvious being geography. The theaters were located outside London proper, across the Thames, in the less savory areas, uh, the same areas that hosted bear baiting, cockfights, and most significantly, brothels. Uh, The famous Globe Theater is only a hop, skip, and a jump from a celebrated brothel called Holland's Leaguer, and many puritanical folks considered the theater to be merely an annex of the brothel. (laughs) There were prostitutes in the audience watching the plays. Uh, There were ladies plying their trade outside the theater doors. And uh, during plague times, both institutions had to be shut down as social distancing issues of Both trades encouraged the spread of the disease. One can understand how the theater building and the events there became associated with prostitution, but this is still not the same as seeing the act of acting as prostitution itself. However, the fear of infection from these institutions began to extend from the physical corruption of the body to the moral corruption of the soul. In the eyes of the Puritans, the spectacle of seeing an actor in fine costumes displaying himself on stage was no different than the spectacle of a prostitute strutting her stuff outside the theater. And watching these actors performing staged representations of love and lust was considered just as bad as committing the act itself. It was written, Few men or women come to plays and resorts of men with safe and chaste minds those filthy and unhonest gestures and movings of the interlude players, what other things do they reach than wanton appetites and desires? It was considered voyeurism, and the fact that the women were played by men often made it worse. The Puritans believed, he that looketh on a woman and desireth to have her, he hath committed adultery already in his heart. When the her... It's actually a hymn, it's an extra Puritan problem. The actor performs sensual services, tempts the eye, seduces the senses, entices you with romantic and lustful stage play and you, as a customer, pay for it. The prostitution analogy is pretty convincing. So now let's look at our second arena. How Elizabethans viewed women. Women in Elizabethan times were considered weaker, both physically and psychologically, to men. Prevailing medical beliefs of the day held that women were essentially incomplete men, that a lack of heat in the womb during pregnancy prevented the development of male organs. So, since they were essentially undeveloped, Women were in need of supervision by men, the completed sex. Women were expected to be chaste, silent, and obedient, and even Queen Elizabeth I spouts this to Parliament. The weight and greatness of this matter might cause in me some fear to speak and bashfulness besides a thing appropriate to my sex. Yes. Even Queen Elizabeth, Gloriana herself, believed and enforced the idea that women were subservient to men. Now, of course, she was more than a woman as she was ordained to the throne by God. She famously said, I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England, too but it was definitely to her advantage to make sure her male parliament knew they were superior by nature. She was just a special case. Regular women were under extreme pressure to conform to societal norms. They should be subservient, homebound, quiet, and focused on providing a home for their husband and children. Contrast this image with that of stage performers. If a woman was to go on stage and play a role, it was tantamount to admitting she was a prostitute, a fallen, disgraced woman, and therefore of no value in society. Acting was the exact opposite of the Elizabethan expectation for women. It was associated with lewdness, prostitution, indecency, it wasn't until King Charles II required that all female roles be played by women that a woman was required to appear on the London stage. The first woman to play Shakespeare on the London stage played Desdemona in 1660, one of the most virtuous Shakespearean characters there is. However, Those ideas about women and the theater were still so deeply ingrained in the minds of the audience that the theater felt the need to write a prologue to prepare the audience for what they were about to see and to convince them of the virtue of their actress. Thomas Jordan penned, I come unknown to any of the rest to tell you news. I saw the lady dressed, the woman plays today, mistake me not, no man in gown or page in petticoat. A woman, to my knowledge, yet I can't, if I should die, make affidavit on't. Oh, do you not twitter, gentlemen? I know you will be censuring, do it fairly though. Tis possible a virtuous woman may abhor all sorts of looseness and yet play. Play on the stage where all eyes are upon her. Shall we count that a crime? France calls an honor. In other kingdoms, husbands safely trust them. The difference lies only in the custom. And let it be our custom, I advise. I'm sure this custom's better than the excise and may procure us custom. Hearts of flint will melt in passion when a woman's in. But gentlemen, you that as judges sit in the star chamber of the house, the pit, have modest thoughts of her. Pray, "'Do not run to give her gifts when the play is done "'with, damn me, your most humble servant, lady. "'She knows these things as well as you, it may be. "'Not a bit there, dear gallants. "'She doth know her own deserts and your temptations too. "'But to the point. "'In this reforming age, we have intents to civilize the stage. "'Our women are defective and so sized "'you'd think they were some of the guard disguised. For to speak truth, men act that are between 40 and 50, wenches of 15, with bones so large and nerves so incompliant, when you call Desdemona, enter giant. We shall purge everything that is unclean, lascivious, scurrilous, impious, or obscene. And when we've put all things in this fair way, bare bones himself may come to see a play. Barebones in that stanza refers to, praise God, Barebones, a famous, ridiculous, holy man of Shakespeare's day. He was, in fact, a real person. But here we finally have some legality for women on stage. It is now required for women to play women's roles, yet society is still having trouble accepting the idea of the virtuous woman as actress actresses began to represent themselves in programs and posters with the title Mrs., even if they weren't married, in an attempt to give themselves a veneer of respectability. They began to really attempt to distinguish themselves as serious actresses, challenging established stage ideas and revolutionizing the theater, pushing envelopes and playing challenging roles. Unfortunately, These attempts did little to change the audience view. Women on stage were viewed mainly as objects of sexual titillation and costumes began to be designed to be more revealing. Rape scenes in plays became very popular. Also popular were breeches roles for women. Shakespeare wrote many of these roles where young women dress up like young men for example, uh, Viola in Twelfth Night. Since he already had young men playing these roles, it made sense for him to create these roles. The young men would look like convincing young men. Having women play these roles breathed new life into the Shakespearean heroines. But unfortunately, even with the new life breathed into them, these roles became popular for a different reason. Male audiences were treated to a view of the actress' shapely legs. In fact, uh, many theater odors began to rewrite Shakespeare's plays to get more cross-dressing and more scantily clad characters on stage. So even though women were making valiant strides to change societal perceptions and be seen as the serious artists they were, change was slow and societal perceptions deeply ingrained, they still are. In 1975, Dame Helen Mirren was on the long-running British talk show, Parkinson. She was a seven-year member of the RSC, had played several leading Shakespearean ladies, and was preparing to play Lady Macbeth. She was ready to chat about her rising career when Michael Parkinson, the host introduced her as a sex queen and quoted, she is especially telling in projecting sluttish eroticism. Dame Helen Mirren was welcomed on stage by someone announcing to the audience that she makes a very convincing whore. Just a few years ago, during an interview for an Avengers movie, Robert Downey Jr. was asked what he learned from playing Tony Stark. Immediately after, Scarlett Johansson was asked what she ate to keep in shape and if she wore any underwear under her Black Widow costume. Clearly, we've got a ways to go. Those cultural norms run deep. So the next time, or the first time, you see an all-female Shakespeare production, remember, it's not just a gimmick. It's an overthrow of centuries of societal norms and expectations. It's an affirmation of the power of female acting and storytelling. It's cross-dressing. Just another great Shakespearean tradition in action. But above all, It's a good play. Thank you for coming to my Bard Talk.
1: This is Gabriela Greer reading Edmund from Act One, Scene Two, Line 58 of King Lear. This is the excellent foppery of the world. That when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeits of our own behavior, we make guilty of our disasters the sun, the moon, and stars, as if we were villains on necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves, and treacherers by spherical predominance. Drunkards, liars, and adulterers by an enforced obedience of planetary influence, and all that we are evil in by a divine thrusting on, an admirable evasion of whore master man to lay his goatish disposition on the charge of a star— My father compounded with my mother under the dragon's tail, and my nativity was under Ursa Major, so that it follows I am rough and lecherous. Fut. I should have been that I am had the maidenliest star in the firmament twinkled on my bastardizing.
3: My name is Sarah Thurmond, and this is Benedict from Much Ado About Nothing. I do much wonder that one man, seeing how much another man is a fool when he dedicates his behaviors to love, will, after he hath laughed at such shallow follies in others, become the argument of his own scorn by falling in love. And such a man as Claudio. I have known when there was no music with him but the drum and the fife. And now he had rather hear the tabor and the pipe. He was wont to speak plain and to the purpose, like an honest man and a soldier. And now is he turned orthography. His words are a very fantastical banquet, just so many strange dishes. May I be so converted and see with these eyes? I cannot tell, I think not. One woman is fair. Yet I am well. Another is wise, yet I am well. Another virtuous, yet I am well. But till all graces be in one woman, one woman shall not come in my grace. Rich she shall be, that's certain. Wise or I'll none. Virtuous or I'll never cheapen her. Fair or I'll never look on her. Of good discourse, an excellent musician. And her hair shall be... uh, What color it please God? (laughs) Oh, the prince and monsieur love. I will hide me in the arbor. This can be no trick. The conference was sadly born. They have the truth of this from Hero. Love me? Why, it must be requited. I hear how I am censured. They say I will bear myself proudly if I perceive the love come from her. They say too that she will rather die than give any sign of affection. I must not seem proud. Happy are they that hear their detractions and can put them to mending. They say the lady is fair. Tis a truth I can bear them witness and virtuous, tis so I cannot reprove it, and wise but for loving me. (laughs) By my troth it is no addition to her wit, nor no great argument of her folly, for I will be horribly in love with her. I may chance have some odd quirks and remnants of wit broken on me because I have railed so long against marriage, but doth not the appetite alter? Shall quips and sentences and these paper bullets of the brain awe a man from the career of his humor? No, the world must be peopled. When I said I would die a bachelor, I did not think I should live till I were married. Here comes Beatrice, by this day she's a fair lady. I do spy some marks of love in her.
4: Laura Domingo, Hamlet, Act Three, Scene One. To be or not to be. That is the question whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, Ugh, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consumption devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, (sighs) aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause, there's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of them worthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life but that the dread of something after death? The undiscovered country, from whose bourn no traveler returns, puzzles the will. It makes us rather bear those ills we have, than fly to others that we know not of. <sighs> thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution, a sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment with this regard the currents turn awry and lose the name of action.
5: This is Kristen Hall. I'll be performing the first of two Prince Howe monologues from Henry the Fourth, Part I. I know you all, and will a while uphold the unyoked humor of your idleness. Yet herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base, contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that, when he please again to be himself, being wanted, he may be more wondered at by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapors that did seem to strangle him. If all the year were playing holidays, to sport would be as tedious as to work. But when they seldom come, they wished for come, and nothing pleaseth but rare accidents. So when this loose behavior I throw off and pay the debt I never promised, it, by how much better than my word I am, by so much shall I falsify men's hopes. And like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation Glittering o'er my fault, shall show more goodly, and attract more eyes, than that which hath no foil to set it off. I'll so offend, to make offense a skill, redeeming time, when men think least, I will. Hello, this is Melinda Marks reading Macbeth, Act 3, Scene 1.
6: To be thus is nothing. But to be safely thus. Our fears in Banquo stick deep, And in his royalty of nature reigns that which would be feared. Tis much he dares, and to that dauntless temper of his mind He hath a wisdom that doth guide his valor to act in safety. There is none but he whose being I do fear. And under him my genius is rebuked, as it is said Mark Antony's was by Caesar. He chid the sisters when first they put the name of king upon me, and bade them speak to him. Then prophet-like they hailed him father to a line of kings. Upon my head they placed a fruitless crown, and put a barren scepter in my grip, thence to be wrenched with an unlineal hand, no son of mine succeeding. If it be so for Banquo's issue, I have filed my mind. For them, the gracious Duncan, have I murdered, Put rancors in the vessel of my peace only for them, And mine eternal jewel given to the common enemy of man To make them kings, the seed of Banquo kings. Rather than so, come fate into the list, And champion me to the utterance.
7: Hi, I'm Josie Bergen Lawson, and my selection is from Act One, Scene Two of Richard III, the character of Richard III. Was ever woman in this humor wooed? Was ever woman in this humor won? I'll have her, but I will not keep her long. What I that killed her husband and his father to take her in her heart's extremest hate with curses in her mouth, tears in her eyes, the bleeding witness of her hatred by. Having God, her conscience, and these bars against me, and I nothing to back my suit at all but the plain devil and assembling looks. And yet to win her all the world to nothing. (laughs) Has she forgot already that brave Prince Edward her Lord, whom I some three months since stabbed in my angry mood at Tewkesbury? A sweeter and lovelier gentleman, framed in the prodigality of nature, young, valiant, wise, and no doubt right royal the spacious world cannot again afford. And will she yet debase her eyes on me that cropped the golden prime of this sweet prince and made her widow to a woeful bed? On me, whose all not equals Edward's moiety? On me that halt and am unshapen thus? My dukedom to a beggarly denier, I do mistake my person all this while. Upon my life she finds, although I cannot, myself to be a marvelous proper man. (laughs) I'll be at charges for a looking glass, but first I'll turn yon fellow in his grave and then return lamenting to my love. Shine out, fair sun, till I have bought a glass, that I may see my shadow as I pass.
5: <laughs> this is Kristen Hall. I will be performing the second of two Prince Howe monologues from Henry the Fourth, Part I. Do not think so. You shall not find it so. And God forgive them that so much have swayed your majesty's good thoughts away from me. I will redeem all this on Percy's head, and in the closing of some glorious day be bold to tell you that I am your son, when I will wear a garment all of blood and stain my favors in a bloody mask, which washed away shall scour my shame with it. And that shall be the day when ere it lights that this same child of honor and renown this gallant hotspur, this all-praised knight, and your unthought of hairy chance to meet. For every honor sitting on his helm would they were multitudes, and on my head my shames redoubled, for the time will come that I shall make this northern youth exchange his glorious deeds for my indignities. Percy is but my factor, good my lord to engross up glorious deeds on my behalf. And I will call him to so strict account that he shall render every glory up, yea, even the slightest worship of his time, or I will tear the reckoning from his heart. This, in the name of God, I promise here. The which, if he be pleased, I shall perform I do beseech your majesty may salve the long-grown wounds of my intemperance if not the end of life cancels all bands and I will die a hundred thousand deaths ere break the smallest parcel of this vow Hello this is Patty
8: Reinhardt and I will be playing Iago from Act 1 Scene 3 of Othello I hate the more, and it is thought abroad that twixt my sheets hath done my office. Hm. I know not if it be true, but I, for mere suspicion in that kind, will do as if for surety. He holds me well, <laughs> the better shall my purpose work on him. Cassio's a proper man, let me see now. To get his place and to plume up my will in double knavery, how? Hmm, how? Let's see. Uh Aha. After some time to abuse Othello's ears that he is too familiar with his wife. (laughs) He hath a person and a smooth dispose to be suspected, framed to make women false. Uh Aha. The moor is of a free and open nature that thinks men honest that but seem to be so and will as tenderly be led by the nose as asses are. <laughs> I have it. It is engendered. Helen and night must bring this monstrous
9: birth to the world's light. <laughs> Hello, my name is Lauren Doyle and this is the soliloquy from Act 5, Scene 5 of Macbeth. She should have died hereafter, there would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing.
3: My name is Sarah Thurmond, and this is one of Hamlet's soliloquies. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working All his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit. And all for nothing. For Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba, that he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears. And cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant, and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I, a dull and muddy-mettled rascal, peek like john dreams unpregnant of my cause and can say nothing. No. Not for a king upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain, breaks my pate across, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie, the throat is deepest to the lungs. Who does me this, huh? Swims, I should take it for it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter, or ere this I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's awful bloody body villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain of vengeance Why What an ass am I? This is most brave, that I, the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must, like a whore, unpack my heart with words, and fall a-cursing, like a very drab, a scullion. Fie upon it, fall about
0: my brain. And now, because no episode is complete without one, Without further ado, I'll hand it back to our resident dramaturg, Dal Picado, for this episode's Bard Babble.
2: As Hamlet says in Act 2, Scene 2, words, words, words. This episode's Bard Babble is Puppy Dog. This adorable moniker for man's best friend first appeared in Shakespeare's King John, Act 2, Scene 1, where Philip the Bastard says, Here's a large mouth indeed that spits forth death and mountains, rocks and seas, talks as familiarly of roaring lions as maids of 13 to of puppy dogs. The word puppy derives from the French poupée, meaning doll or puppet. And the word dog comes from an old English word meaning hound. Shakespeare was the first one to mash them together and make them adorable. Shakespeare created over 400 words. This has been one of them.
0: A huge thank you to all of this episode's performers and to Dahl for another insightful bard babble and fantastic bard talk today. Tune into our next episode of ShakesPod Pod for a behind-the-scenes peek into the production process as Svs's Tanya Duncan chats with female stage managers of the South Bay. From SVS to all of our wonderful listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of ShakesPod. Pod.